Welcome to the Empowering Midlife Wellness Podcast, where we talk about everything to do with midlife women's wellness and creating the best second half of life. I'm your host, Dr. Susan Hardwick-Smith. I'm a board-certified gynecologist, certified menopause practitioner and hormone replacement specialist, as well as an ICF-certified life and leadership coach and lots of other things. So if you want to check me out and learn about my private practice and other offerings, my website is www www.drsusan.com. That's D-R-S-U-S-A-N.com. It's my commitment to stay neutral by not accepting advertising dollars from sponsors. So all of these episodes are offered freely. And the best way that you can help this podcast is to share it with your friends, leave a positive review, and also keep in mind this is simultaneously posted in video format on YouTube, where you can find me by searching for Dr. Susan Hardwick-Smith. This week on Empowering Midlife Wellness, I'm answering some of the most common questions that I get about general women's health issues in the second half of life, and I picked 10 that have some potentially really interesting answers. I hope you enjoy them. Hi friends and welcome to this week's episode. You know, I get so many questions and I put together a list of 10 of the most common ones that I think have really interesting answers that might be pertinent to all of you, or certainly many of you. So before I tell you what those are, I just want to review what is the point of all of this? Like what is the underlying piece of wisdom that we're all getting at? And that is to me, how to live a long time, but in a really healthy state, right? So not just lifespan, but health span. And we've talked about that a lot. So the dream would be to live a really long time with a very high level of health, and then die very quickly. And of course, we can't guarantee that. We never know what's going to happen in the future. But what we can do is set that up to be possible. So if we don't do some of these things, we're setting it up to be impossible. So I always kind of go back to what is the point of what I'm doing here? It's not just to feel good today, but it's to set up a healthier version of myself when I'm 85 or 90. And what are the things that I want to do when I'm an elderly person? Basic daily life activities. And we talked about some of that last week with Kelly Workman. Can I walk down to my airplane? Can I put a bag above my head in the plane? Can I go up a flight of stairs? Can I get off the floor by myself if I fall down or if I'm playing with my grandkids? And can I travel and do the things I enjoy doing, play sports or go dancing? Daily life activities. So some of these questions are pretty much all of them are pertaining to this idea of health span. So with that in mind, here I go with the questions. So you know I need my reading glasses. One of my questions that I don't know the answer to is how to reverse the changes that happen in our eyes with age. And that is coming, by the way. There's a lot of research into that. We just don't know the answer yet. So number one, what did we really learn from the Women's Health Initiative study? Well, that's such a big question. And just to review, the Women's Health Initiative study was published in 2002 after stopping it early. It was a huge study funded by the NIH, National Institute of Health, so it was government funded, looking at a massive group of women in different segments, so 60,000 women plus or minus in the whole study. But the part we talk about a lot is the part that looked at hormone replacement. 
So the very short story answer to this question is that we actually did learn quite a bit from the Women's Health Initiative study. The most important thing that I learned was not to believe the media when they quote a study in a single sentence, for example, in 2002, when the media reported that the Women's Health Initiative study had found that estrogen causes breast cancer. That was absolutely not what the study showed at all. And just shows that the average journalist does not know how to interpret a very complex study, nor does the average doctor, just to say. It's a very complicated thing to interpret a study appropriately. But the short version is it was misreported. Estrogen, even in that study, did not increase the risk of breast cancer. As we know now, it was the chemical called Provera that was the culprit in that respect. And the bigger picture was that that was a study looking at a drug we don't use anymore, horse urine estrogen taken by mouth. We don't do either of those anymore. We use bioidentical estrogen in a transdermal form. So that avoids the liver and any potential problems that can come from that. They used a synthetic progestin called Provera that I mentioned. And more importantly, perhaps it was looking at a group of patients that is not most of us. It was looking at older women who had been through menopause for some time. Average age was 63 all the way up to 80 with all kinds of health problems. They didn't exclude any health issues. And then taking the drug that I mentioned, even so in the worst setting you could possibly design, very few problems occurred. There was a minuscule increase in breast cancer amounting to one patient per thousand per year in the group who took Provera, not related to estrogen, and then a very small increased risk in blood clotting disorders, the kind that cause a stroke. All of that's mitigated by giving estrogen transdermally. So that being said, the Women's Health Initiative was a very big study. It was just looking at questions that are not relevant to most of us. It was a population that does not mimic most of us and taking a drug that none of us take anymore. So can we just leave that behind? But the number one thing we learned from the Women's Health Initiative study is do not get your scientific information from the newspaper because... <laughs> journalists do not know how to interpret studies. And that was such an incredible example of how that just caused so much downhill damage to people. It caused loss of life, massive amount of illness, really tragic the way that was reported. So there's a lot to learn there. And because of the damage that was done to such a large group of women for so many years, and frankly continues to be done by doctors and other people who are less educated about what that study really showed, still not recommending that patients take hormone replacement, that damage continues to be done. So can we just learn our lesson that the media is not the place to get our scientific information? Let's get it from a more reputable source. Okay, that was question number one. Question number two, do women need testosterone? Well, that's so interesting because some of you might have listened to some of my previous videos about this. Fun fact that many of you don't know is that we as women make more testosterone throughout our lives than estrogen. Yes, that's true. Much more testosterone actually than estrogen. So testosterone is the primary circulating sex hormone in our bodies as women prior to menopause. Now we make about 10 times less than men make, but we make five to 10 times more than the amount of estradiol that we make. And the reason that is often misunderstood Lots of reasons, actually. There's just sort of a cultural disconnect that suggests that testosterone is for men and women don't have any, which is absolutely untrue. 
So some of it's just lack of education. And some of it's the fact that these two hormones are reported in different units. So for example, estradiol is reported in a unit called picograms per milliliter, and testosterone is reported in a totally different unit of nanograms per deciliter. And what does that mean? Well, in order to compare apples to apples, you would actually have to multiply the testosterone number by 10. Well, that's a lot of confusing information, but the bottom line is, yes, we need testosterone when we are our healthiest, let's just say in our 20s and 30s. We have a lot of circulating testosterone, and as it goes away over time, it drops to levels very close to zero, or zero in my case, as early as in our mid-40s. That is not coincidentally when we experience often a decrease in libido, loss of muscle mass, increase in bone turnover that can increase our risk of osteoporosis. Interestingly, testosterone is positive for breast cancer, meaning it decreases the incidence of breast cancer. That's fascinating, isn't it? So if you were to take estradiol and testosterone, like me, my risk of breast cancer is actually lower than someone who doesn't take anything. So back to the question, do we need testosterone as women? I don't think we need anything, but certainly we can benefit from it. And taking testosterone for most women increases libido, improves muscle mass. It's great for bone density. It's great for neutral or even lowering the risk of breast cancer, sleep, energy, mood, so many things. And guess what? We've had it all our lives. So just going back to those numbers, let's just take an imaginary woman. You have your blood drawn on a random day of the month, knowing that hormones fluctuate throughout the month. Let's just say your estradiol is 100 and your testosterone is 20. I'm just making up numbers. That could be a very normal blood test for a woman who's aged, say, 40. So if your estradiol is 100, remember, picograms per milliliter, and your testosterone is 20, remember a different unit, you have to multiply the testosterone by 10. So now you have a testosterone of 200 and an estradiol of 100. Now in that setting, I purposefully chose one that makes the testosterone only twice as high as our estradiol, but with different levels, we can see it sometimes 10 times as high. And that's in a normal, healthy patient. So imagine when it declines close to zero, it's impossible that can happen without us feeling differently. I always think about this. Now, testosterone and estradiol, these very powerful hormones, are transformative. When nature gives them to a prepubertal child who gets full of hormones, they transform. You can turn a, an 11-year-old preteen into a grown-up looking person <laughs> with these hormones. They're transformative. So if we were to take them away, it's impossible that we could go through that without being transformed. And it's not generally in a positive way when it happens at the other end of the spectrum. So yes, testosterone is very important for women. Number three, this is a good one. What do lab reference values mean? Well, this is one of my favorite. I've talked about it before. So if you see your labs on a piece of paper or on the computer screen, you're going to see your results to the left, and then over on the right, you'll see what's called a reference range. The understanding, and I'm just gonna say misunderstanding, is that if your number falls within that reference range, that you're good. 
And if it falls outside of that, you're not. And that is a very unfortunate mistake to make when doctors are looking at your labs. Uh, because sometimes doctors are so busy that they just maybe have a nurse or an assistant told to just scan down the list and just tell me about anything that falls outside the reference range. Well, if you did that, you would miss a lot of things because that reference range for most labs is not in any way suggesting that is what is optimal. It's simply an observation that 95% of their clients fall within that range. Some labs are age specific and some are not. For example, Quest is age specific, so they will present their reference range incorporating 95% of people in your age group that they have in their population database, and that includes sick people. That includes obese people, people with diabetes, people with cancer, people on medications, people not on medications. It's not saying that is what is ideal. So depending on the lab that's being measured, sometimes optimal is at the upper end of that range. And sometimes optimal is at the lower end of that range, and sometimes it's right in the middle. So we really have to look at that reference range a little bit with a grain of salt and understand what the number means in order to establish what the optimal number would be for you. For example, if I measured your fasting insulin, we would want it to be at the lower end of that range, like less than five. The upper end of that range for some labs is 18 or even 24. And if your fasting insulin's anywhere near that, you're either a type two diabetic or you're very close to it. Other labs, you might wanna be at the upper end of that range, like vitamin B12, for example. So you really have to look at the number critically. Others, you wanna be in the middle. For example, your free thyroid levels, where you really want to be somewhere approaching the middle of that huge bell curve. So we don't wanna look at the reference ranges as where we need to be. There needs to be another column for optimal range. In most labs, there is not such a column, so you need your provider to create that for you. So do not look at reference ranges and think they are perfectly fine to be from the bottom to the top. That's absolutely not true. Here's an example, I'm 56, and if I measured my estradiol, progesterone, and testosterone, if I wasn't taking anything, all three would be zero. And that would be read as normal because that is normal for a 56-year-old woman, but it sure as heck is not optimal. So you get the picture. We've got to look at those numbers with some critical eye, and that requires time. Your provider might not have the time to do that if they only have 10 minutes. So sometimes we've got to be our own advocates and really study what those numbers mean. That makes sense? So number four, do I really need to lift weights? Well, we talked about this last week with Kelly Workman and the answer is yes, you really do. And lifting weights doesn't necessarily mean going to the gym and pumping iron, although that's a really good idea. The point is that we need to keep our muscle mass high as we get older. As we were talking about last week, the natural trajectory is that we're losing muscle mass over time, and that loss in muscle mass is associated with all kinds of health issues. The obvious ones, like weight gain, diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, and some not so obvious ones like Alzheimer's disease, all related to how much muscle mass we have. Now, obviously that doesn't mean it's causative, but people with more muscle mass move around more. They're more likely to be more active, obviously more engaged with other people. They're more likely to sleep better, therefore less cognitive decline. All of it plays a part. So this is like 
human soup. We've got all these things floating around and we need to address all of them. But I'm just going to say there is no way, no way that you can be a healthy 85 year old or older without doing some resistance training. Without that, it is impossible. So if we want to set it up to be possible to have a long health span, yes, we absolutely have to do resistance training. And I highly recommend measuring your muscle mass because that's one of the only ways to know what's going on. We talked about that last week with body composition. It's really important. It's not just a little bit important. In fact, it's so important that it might be the most important thing. If you said, I can only do one thing, Dr. Susan, what is the one thing? I would say lift weights. It's about 10 other things, <laughs> but I put that one at the top. So yes, we really do need to lift weights. You cannot get around it. You've got to do it if you want to live long and be healthy. We've got to do it. Next one. Oh, I love this one. Is HDL, high-density lipoprotein, also known as good cholesterol, really protective for heart disease? No. Turns out it's not. Well, this is another example of where we've really had to eat our words. So I was taught as many of you were uh, in med school, very, very simple. HDL, good. LDL, bad. So when you go to the doctor, you get a basic lipid panel. You'll measure your total cholesterol, your HDL, your LDL. HDL we think of as good cholesterol. LDL we think of as bad cholesterol, but it's not that simple. And also triglycerides. So what we used to think, because it kind of made sense, was that if HDL was really high, because HDL is involved in this process of reverse lipid transport. So LDL, the bad guy in quotation marks, carries the stuff and can deposit it in our vessels, specifically the heart, and then the big vessels in our neck that supply our brain. That can lead to heart attack or stroke. We know this. We also know that HDL carries some of that back to the liver. So it can be is extruded in our GI tract. So we've known that for some time, and I was taught about that much. Honestly, that just about covers what I learned about lipids in med school. <laughs> so very simple. We want LDL to be as low as possible because that's the bad guy, and we want HDL to be as high as possible because that's the good guy. That's what we were taught. Well, that was supported by the fact that people with very low HDL and high LDL tended to have a higher risk of coronary artery disease. So the leap that we took as physicians was that it must be then the case that if you have a high HDL, that's really good, right? Well, turns out, unfortunately, not to be true. So a bunch of drugs were invented with the intention of increasing HDL, because that would be great, right? And turns out they didn't work. It was so disappointing. So this class of drug called CTAP inhibitors really effectively elevates HDL. So you take this drug, HDL goes up. Guess what? It did not do anything. In fact, in some of the studies, it was actually harmful. So we really had to rethink this idea that elevating HDL is helpful because it isn't. Such a bummer, I know, because we've been so excited about telling people, well, if your HDL is really high, you can kind of ignore the fact that your LDL is high as well. So this is a lesson to learn if you take away one piece of information. If your LDL is high, that's the low-density lipoprotein, that is important regardless of what your HDL is. If your HDL is really high, it is not true that it kind of negates the fact that your LDL is high. That's what I told patients for years. I've probably told a lot of you that too, and it's wrong. 
So it's very good to eat your words when you're a doctor or anybody and realize when we were wrong because elevating HDL does not reduce the risk of heart disease. In fact, there's some really interesting cases, very rare, where elevated HDL can actually be problematic because it can mean you've got lots of HDL floating around in your blood. It's not attaching to its receptor where it can do its job. So just because you have something floating around in your blood doesn't necessarily mean that it's available for use or that it's actually useful for your cells. So we have to move away from this idea that whatever it is that we're measuring in the bloodstream is really indicating what is available to our cells because that is not always the case. Another good example is insulin resistance. We're gonna talk about that a lot more because insulin can be very high, but it's not working. Our body's becoming insensitive to it. So lots of other examples. We can have very high hormones, for example, but they're all bound to a protein and not available for use. So we have to be careful about what we're stating is true based on your blood levels of most things. So high HDL could be good, but it does not negate high LDL. So if you've got a high LDL, we want to look at that independently. And by no means would I tell you that your HDL kind of erases the fact that your LDL is high. So what are the tests can you do to see if this means anything? Just say your LDL is mildly elevated. It's maybe 120 to 150, nothing critical, but it's a bit high. We want it less than 100 ideally. The next step is to do some more advanced testing, and I've talked about that before, but a more advanced lipid panel that looks at whether or not that is something that could be harmful to you, looks at some things with a bunch of alphabet soup called LP little a, APO B, APO E. <laughs> I don't know why they invented them with these silly letters, but your doctor will know what you're asking for if you request an advanced lipid panel. So for example, if your LDL is a little bit high and your HDL is pretty good and your doctor's sort of been not paying that much attention and telling you it's, it's kind of a wash, we would check those things. And if you have a high LP little a, that is much more concerning. And if you have a high ApoB, that is much more concerning. So that would help dictate whether you need to be on medication or not. So I think it's really important to get more advanced testing, not just rely on the basic lipid panel, unless it's perfectly normal. Now, if it's perfectly normal, great, you don't need to do anything else. But if your LDL is a bit elevated, even if your HDL is high, we need to look into that a little bit more because heart disease is the number one killer of both men and women, we don't want to ignore it. It's the number one thing. So if you've got any type of lipid abnormality, triglycerides are high, LDL's high, or some of that other alphabet soup is high. <laughs> we want to do a calcium heart scan. In fact, I think everybody should do that when we're 40. We do all this other screening, right? We do mammograms, pap smears, colonoscopies, bone density testing. Why are we not screening routinely for the most common disease that we die from, which is coronary artery disease? So I recommend everyone do a calcium heart scan at around age 40, maybe earlier if you've got a lot of family history of heart disease or your lipid panel's not so good. So very easy to do a calcium heart scan. You can check your local hospital. If you live in Houston, advanced body scan. You can do it without a doctor's order. But really, really important don't just blow off having a high LDL because your HDL is high. Got it? Okay, next. Well, a little bit more about insulin resistance. Um, number six, is pre-diabetes really a big deal? And the answer is absolutely yes. So somebody came up with 
someone makes these numbers up, right? And we believe that they're true, but we have to remember they're made up. So somebody, uh, very clever, made up a cutoff at which we have diabetes, a cutoff at which we have prediabetes, and then another number which is normal. But what we need to remember is it's actually all on a continuum. So if you have a prediabetes, that means you already have significantly disrupted glucose metabolism, and that will lead to diabetes. And actually it's already causing harm. So it's not like we're suddenly sick when we cross the line to meet the criteria for diabetes. For example, if you're doing a hemoglobin A1C, that's a blood test that estimates what your blood sugar has been for the past three months. Typically the lab will say if it's 5.7 to 6.4, you have prediabetes. If it's 6.5, suddenly you have diabetes. So you were fine at 6.4 and all of a sudden you're sick at 6.5. That makes no sense. That means your sugar's been really out of whack for a long time. And we don't want to wait to get sick before we intervene. We want to intervene before you get sick. And by intervene, guess what? Nutrition and exercise, plus or minus medication, but the great majority of metabolic disorders that elevate insulin and eventually lead to the frank diabetes diagnosis can be cured with nutrition and exercise. Guess what? Weightlifting, one of the best ways to treat insulin resistance. So I mentioned insulin resistance lots of times because it's one of the, well, one of the things that we can pick up early before you get really sick and so often ignored. So it would often fall into the pre-diabetic bucket when you've got too much insulin and it's not working very well because your body's become resistant to it. Eventually our sugar goes up and all kinds of havoc occurs. But before that, just having elevated insulin causes all kinds of havoc, like weight gain, for example. So we really want to address this before you get sick. So yes, prediabetes is a big deal. We really want that hemoglobin A1C to be pretty close to five, not 5.7, not 6.2, but five. So again, if we're in our 50s, we need to be really healthy going into our later two decades. We can't be really kind of barely okay right now and expect to be healthy when we're 80, because guess what? It's not gonna go in a good direction unless we're really working hard. So yes, prediabetes, a very big deal. And we wanna treat insulin resistance immediately. The only way you know you have it is have your doctor check your fasting insulin as well as your fasting glucose. There's a little calculation we can do. We can pretty much tell by looking at some people that they have insulin resistance as well, but it needs to be addressed. And many doctors don't want to talk about nutrition and exercise because they don't have time. They don't want to offend you, all of these reasons. But if your doctor is not talking to you about nutrition and exercise, please don't have to fire them, but seek some other help because those are the most important treatments for all of these things, right? The most important by far. We cannot get around it. All right. How much protein do we really need? That's number seven. Kelly talked about this last week too. So we mentioned the recommended daily amount. Um, the US FDA has an RDA for most things, right? What we need to keep in mind is those amounts are generally calculated to prevent sickness. So if you see the RDA for vitamin D, for example, it's the amount we need to prevent getting rickets. <laughs> well, that's a pretty low bar. The amount that is suggested in the United States of protein that we need is way too low. It's, a, it's enough to prevent malnutrition, which is why that number was established. But 0.8 grams per kilogram of ideal body weight is less than half what we currently recommend, which is one gram per pound of ideal body weight. You might know the conversion is from a pound to a kilo is 2.2. So 
that amount 0.8 per kilo is less than half what we currently recommend. For example, for somebody my weight, I try to get 120 grams of protein a day and the US RDA for me would be closer to 50, which is not nearly enough. If I were eating 50 grams of protein a day, I would not be able to build any muscle at all. I would be losing muscle and my risk of a whole bunch of diseases would be going up. So going back to how important it is to maintain muscle for all of the reasons that I mentioned, we can't maintain, let alone gain muscle without enough protein. So one gram per ideal body weight. Make sense? All right, on to the next one. Number eight, is Alzheimer's disease inevitable? And second part, what's that APOE gene all about? Well, up until recently, we thought Alzheimer's was just something that we were going to get or not get, and there wasn't anything we could do about it. Uh, many of us are struggling in our age group with parents who are suffering from Alzheimer's. I have it in my family. It's terrible. I mean, that is an understatement. Being a patient with Alzheimer's is terrible. Being a family member taking care of a patient with Alzheimer's is absolutely devastating. And yes, there are a lot of things that we can do to reduce our risk, which is fantastic. Now there are genetics that can predispose us to Alzheimer's, but by no means does that write the ticket that we will get it. So addressing this APOE gene question, the APOE gene, we've talked about previously, is a test that I would do. I've done it myself. I recommend my patients do it. I recommend everybody do it because that information is very useful. I have patients who say, I don't want to find out if I've got an increased risk of Alzheimer's because there's nothing I can do about it. But that's not true. There actually are a lot of things that you can do about it. So when you get the APOE gene results, there's three possibilities of the gene. They're called E2, E3, or E4. And of course, we have two copies of each just to make it more complicated. The most common garden variety genetic makeup would be, like me, E3, E3. That's what most people have. The E3 gene is by far the most common. If you had the E2 gene, either one or two copies, that reduces the risk of Alzheimer's. If you have the E4, that increases the risk of Alzheimer's. So E4, E4 would have the highest risk E4 slash something else would have a slightly lower risk than the double copy, and then E3, E3 would be average. Does that make sense? So it is useful to find out, I think, because if you do have one or two copies of the E4, don't worry, doesn't mean you will get Alzheimer's disease. It just means you would behoove you to put a fire under doing all the things that you could do to reduce your risk, which sound very much like the things that reduce our risk of heart disease. It's quite amazing because the thought is that Alzheimer's is initially driven by a perfusion disorder, so we want to have good blood flow to our brain. Later on, it sets up those tau tangles and sort of messy looking things that are seen in biopsies of the brain in patients with Alzheimer's, but probably the thing that starts it all off is a change in blood flow. So guess what decreases Alzheimer's? exercise, <laughs> healthy nutrition, keeping your lipid panel normal, keeping your blood pressure normal, not smoking, being normal weight, sleeping well, keeping blood sugar under control. I made a video about that a month or two ago. Really important to do all those things, not just for the obvious reasons, but also for this additional decrease in neurodegenerative diseases, especially Alzheimer's. Don't want that. So yes, there's absolutely things that you can do. It's not inevitable. And they're the same things that reduce our risk of heart disease and most other things. So if we change our lifestyle in that way, we'll get so many benefits, including reducing Alzheimer's. Pretty cool, isn't it? Okay, number nine. 
what supplements are really helpful or what supplements do I take? Many patients ask me that. Well, there is so many supplements, right? And I will tell you the great majority of them don't do anything. Um, so we want to be really careful what we take. We can get most everything from food. There's no question about it. And I personally believe that supplements should be directed to something that we've measured to be in need of supplementation for you. So most women need several things. Um, one is vitamin D. Not everybody, but most of us are staying out of the sun and we need UV light in order to metabolize vitamin D. Vitamin D is critical for bone health, immune health, a bunch of other things. So an average of 2,000 international units a day of D3, adding vitamin K2 to it helps the absorption. I'll show you a picture of the one that I take here. Now, 5,000 international units daily would be a good amount to get your level up if it's very low. Uh, right now, mine is back to normal, normal or optimal, meaning sort of 40 to 80 or so on the blood test. So once you've got your vitamin D into that target range, you can drop down to 2,000 units a day, or what I do is take that 5,000 unit one three times a week. Obviously, that's 15,000 a week, more or less 2,000 a day. Uh, but the only way we know is to draw your blood. So vitamin D is really important for most people. A really good B complex is really good for most people too especially for me because I eat largely a plant-based diet. Uh, it's hard to get enough vitamin B12. Now, B vitamins are involved in countless enzymatic processes in our body, and without adequate B vitamins, our body cannot run properly. That's a very simplified version. There's a particular B vitamin I recommend, I take it myself, that has the methylated prefix. So methylated B vitamins are working on a quite complex pathway that will very likely lower a nasty inflammatory marker called homocysteine. So we want homocysteine to be very low. One way to lower it, the only way to lower it, is to take a methylated B vitamin. So that's one of the many benefits. Now, do B vitamins give you energy? You know, a lot of places give B vitamin shots and things like that. That has actually never been shown to be helpful in any studies that will elevate your blood levels, but it doesn't give you energy like caffeine does. But B vitamins are critical in the enzymatic pathways that lead to production of energy. So I tell patients, you know, it's not directly going to give you more energy, like drinking a cup of coffee, but it will slowly improve your body's ability to create energy. So yes, we need B vitamins. And if you're like me and you don't get enough in your diet or you don't absorb them very well, taking a supplement's great. Plus you get that side benefit that it lowers your homocysteine. So those two I take. Calcium, really important for our bones. For women, we need about a thousand milligrams a day. Now that includes what we're getting in our diet. So if you're doing dairy, you're probably getting plenty. 300 milligrams, for example, would be in a serving of dairy. If you're not doing dairy, it might behoove you to take a supplement. But keep in mind, we cannot absorb very much at once. So if you're taking a giant pill that has 500 milligrams or more of calcium in it, we're not going to be able to absorb that. So taking a smaller dose and then accompanying it with nutritious foods rich in calcium. For example, I take 300 milligrams of calcium with magnesium and I get the rest of my diet. We'll have plenty of calcium to make sure our bones are not becoming depleted and we're not losing bone density. Makes sense? And then gut health, really important. If we can manage to get prebiotics and probiotics in our diet, that's great. Someone like me, I don't eat yogurt, sauerkraut, fermented foods, so I'm not getting probiotics are those live healthy bacteria in my diet. So I do take a probiotic. I like thorn, of course, they make a really good one. I'll put a picture of it here. And then fiber, which is the food that the healthy bacteria eat, 
really helpful for so many things from cancer prevention to just having a nice regular bowel movement to lowering insulin and weight loss. So many benefits of fiber. Uh, so taking fiber every day is critical if you don't get enough in your diet. And I don't regularly get enough in my diet. Uh, 30 to 40 grams a day is what's recommended. So we talked about gut health, probiotics, fiber, if you don't get those in your diet, or like me, if you don't get enough, vitamin D, vitamin B, and then I wanna put a plug in for omega-3s. So I actually made a video about omega-3s, uh, maybe it was about a year ago. And like I mentioned, sometimes we have to eat our words. Uh, in that particular video, I'd mentioned all of the different uh, data that had suggested omega-3s were good for different things, but it was pretty gray um, in many cases, except for the fact that omega-3s definitely lower triglycerides. That's what I said. Now, what I didn't say is what I know now is that omega-3s really do reduce the risk of Alzheimer's, which is amazing, and higher doses than you would traditionally take. So again, going back to the recommended daily amount, you might hear something like 500 milligrams of a combination of DHA and EPA if you add those together. But for neuroprotection, you need probably more than 2,000 milligrams, so two grams a day. Some people even say more. So if you were a neuroscientist specializing in neurodegenerative diseases, I guarantee you they're taking two to five grams of marine-based omega-3s. So that means not ALA, not the plant-based stuff. Now I'm a vegetarian, as you know, but I actually have added marine-based omega-3s into my supplement plan and high dose, like two grams a day. So if you look at the bottle and you add up the EPA plus the DHA, that'll give you a number. For example, in the one that I take made by Thorne, it has 600 and some change. So in order to get 1,000, you'd have to take two. In order to get 2,000, you'd have to take four. <laughs> so it's a big handful of stuff. The reason it's a big handful of stuff is you're trying to fit a lot of oil into these little capsules. So they are quite large. That's the only downside. And yes, you can eat fish. So again, going back to what the government recommends eating fish two to three times a week, you're going to get maybe 300 milligrams of fish oil when you eat a standard serving of fish, depending on what kind it is. So you can see it's quite difficult to get to 2,000 milligrams a day. So why does omega-3 supplementation reduce the risk of Alzheimer's? Well, we're not exactly sure. Now, part of it might be in the way that it lowers triglycerides. Anything that lowers triglycerides is good for HDL as well. Now, I mentioned having high HDL isn't the cure for everything, but you definitely don't want HDL to be low. We've seen that that's a bad idea. Now making it higher doesn't solve all the problems in the world, but lowering triglycerides is good. That in turn is good for your HDL. And as far as uh, Alzheimer's being a primarily a vascular disorder, maybe that's some of it. Not to mention the omega-3s are a vital part of the coding of our nerves. And so, you know, that's also an important point. So we talk about keeping our brain well lubed. So omega-3s, I'm going to add to the list of supplements that I think most or all people should take, especially if you are at higher risk of Alzheimer's. Now, one could say we're at high risk of Alzheimer's if we're just going to live a long time. Plus, being a female, that's a higher risk. Plus, having a family history, plus having that genetic predisposition. So lots of things could put you in that group. Simply being a female who's going to live a long time, that's putting us in a high enough risk group that I would say definitely take omega-3s. Then there are a whole bunch of other supplements that might be appropriate for you based on your own particular nutritional patterns and your particular needs. So I think that's the answer to that question. And then the last one, number 10 on my list of common questions with interesting answers is... 
is red wine really good for longevity? The answer is no. I'm sorry. I wish it was because I love red wine. You know, the not so long ago piece of wisdom was that drinking red wine was good for longevity. The reason that came about was because in the so-called blue zones, uh, people who eat the Mediterranean diet, for example, certain parts of Italy and Greece where people tend to live longer than here, for sure, red wine is part of their diet. And so it was sort of thought, well, maybe that's one of the reasons. And then when you analyze red wine, it's got this compound in it called resveratrol, which has been shown to have lots of antioxidant and potentially anti-aging properties. Problem is you have to drink so much red wine to get a significant amount of resveratrol that it would be impossible. And you would subsequently create a lot of other health issues. So what we currently know is there's no amount of any alcoholic beverage that is helpful for health. However, probably a very small amount is not harmful. So if you enjoy alcohol, and I made a video about alcohol recently, doing an inventory I think is a really good idea. And for women, a good goal is to stick to no more than seven drinks a week. Now beyond seven drinks a week, we do see harm. It's carcinogenic, it elevates the risk of at least seven cancers, including breast cancer, liver obviously, and then everything else in our GI tract, as well as making us overweight, causing poor behavior, affecting relationships, <laughs> lots of sugar, all of those other things, and then affecting our sleep. So uh, alcohol, one drink a day, which is five ounces of wine or one ounce of liquor, no more than seven a week. Uh, beyond that, it does cause harm. There's no amount that's been shown to be helpful, which is a bummer, but true. So those are 10 interesting fun facts about health. I hope you found them useful. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe, share it with your friends, and I can't wait to see you next week.